creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. This is Nick. And I'm Allison. And I don't have any beer to review for you today. Wow, that's that's fast. That's very... Yes, very fast. And so, today we are talking about... Uh, oh, so you're not going to let me introduce what I am drinking? No, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Whoa. No, roadmap first. Roadmap first. What? So, this is all uh, wrong. All right. So, the roadmap for today and for this episode is we're going to introduce to you the C- uh, CBE conference, the Christians for Biblical Equality conference that we are going to in August. Mm-hmm. And then Alice's, Allison is going to lead us through a conversation on Holda, one of those forgotten Old Testament prophets that everyone ignores, especially if you're uh, John Piper. And then we'll talk about some objections to basic uh, egalitarian hermeneutics, which are not very good objections to us because they're not very good. And specifically how it relates to Holda. Yep. And then at the end of this episode, we may have... Insisted. Sorry. At the end of the episode, at the end of the episode, there may be something for you in relation to the conference that may or may not bring down the price a smidgen. But you can only get that through us. So you just have to wait to the end, or you can just skip to the end. Or if you're a student, you can actually apply, and they're very nice, and they oftentimes will waive um, a good portion of your conference fee, if not mm. all of it, and give you chances to volunteer. So, yep. and so there, But there, you didn't hear that. No, you didn't hear that. Because you need our discount code. Yes, you yes. need our discount code. You're captive to the discount code. So today uh, we are talking about... Let's start with the CBE conference. So, Allison, what is the theme? Where is it at? What's the dates? And uh, all that fun stuff. All right. So, I... But don't tell no coupon code. <laughs> yeah. He he can kind of read my mind a bit. Also, real quick, just to interject, I'm drinking from my Junior Project uh, plastic glass, and I'm drinking peppermint tea because I can't drink alcohol. And I, who can drink alcohol and like to remind Nick of this fact all the time... I'm actually drinking um, sparkling water uh, from Waterloo um, mango flavor. It's a LaCroix knockoff, but I'm pretty certain it's actually by the same people who make LaCroix. I but don't know. The mango is actually pretty tasty. But it's good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's drinking that is like tricking your brain into thinking you're drinking soda, and it's actually healthier for you. So back to the CBE conference, Allison. What is up with that? <laughs> All right. So um, I actually get the... I have the fun of helping to put together the theme of these conferences, and I get to also uh, invite several speakers. So the theme for this um, year is going to be Created to Thrive, Mutuality, Power, and Identity. Ooh, Created to Thrive. Yes. Nice, I like that. And um, we picked, or I picked it um, specifically in the context of a lot of what's happening with abuse. Mm -hmm. And especially, but we wanted to kind of get at the heart of what the core is of what we believe. Um, so not just think in terms of a negative of what we shouldn't do, but kind of have a view, a vision for the future. Hmm. Um, hence, you know, the idea of what, what are we created to be? Hmm. And that's supposed, and then mutuality is the first word. So that includes men and women mm-hmm. and then power. Um, Cause power is a big thing in the Bible, um, both positive and negative. Yeah. So who we were meant to be as image bearers, 
um, as people that are called into the kingdom, and then how that gets twisted and mangled. And then finally, identity. So where is our identity found? Hmm. Okay. So anyway, um, it's going to be in Houston, Texas. Um, August, God's country. <laughs> August uh, 2nd through the 4th. 2nd through the 4th. All right. Not all the speakers are in yet, but there's a few that I'm looking forward to. Um, first, Shane Claiborne is going to be there. So nice. come and hear him speak. And Lisa Sharon Harper will be there. Oh, snap. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I think she's also going to be speaking on uh, faith-based organizing for faith. a workshop as well. Interesting. Okay. She's a plenary speaker, um, and her title is The Very Good News for Women for Such a Time as This. Eugene Hung will be speaking on leading your church's response to Me Too and Church Too. Then I'm scrolling down. So there's there's actually several that I want to go to. Well, here's one I want to go to. Okay. It's uh, by Dr. Todd Still at Truett Seminary in Waco, Texas. His workshop title is Nevertheless in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 11, 11, Interdependence in Christ. And so as a New Testament nerd, I am really looking forward to rubbing shoulders with one of my favorite Baptist theologians. So that'll be fun. I'm, li- I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I specifically picked that one for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, you got to gotta throw, gotta throw your man a bone every once in a while. <laughs> uh, let's see. I can't decide. I want them all. Uh, Mitch Randall is going to be speaking on theological malpractice. And how it stands culpable in sexual abuse. Hmm. I'm not sure, but I think he's going to be speaking uh, specifically about the Southern Baptist Convention. Oh, oh, that's right. I think he went to, I think he went to Southwestern, uh, the Southern Baptist Seminary in Texas. So Uh, don't uh, hold me to that, but I think he may be covering that. All right. Someone I'm looking forward to are two people, Uh, a friend of ours, Rob Dixon. He's doing something on, I think the title was Weeping, Submission, and Playing the Liar debunking the myth of biblical masculinity. He's a Fuller grad, so I'm a little biased there. <laughs> and Sandra Glahn is, I believe she's at Dallas Theological Seminary, and she's talking about Artemis of the Ephesians in first century Ephesus and how that impacts how we read First Timothy, and I'm assuming that's 2.12 and following. So I'm looking forward to both of those, but Todd still is kind of where my heart is at. Todd, you have my heart. <laughs> Annette Altman's is going to be speaking on understanding double abuse, and that's a term I believe she coined. Oh, okay. And its consequences. She's actually been published in a uh, in a newspaper that's actually really close to us, the OC Register, the Orange County Register. I, I read that growing up in Orange County in Southern California, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Mimi Haddad, uh, our fearless leader, yes, yes, Mimi. And president of CBE is actually going to be speaking on women in leadership and looking at it from a very practical business perspective. Mm. Uh, And what I mean by that is she's going to say, look, it's well known across the board in the business world, internationally, that when uh, men and women lead together, there's mutual thriving across the board in Mm. ways that can be uh, in numbers. So everyone uh, gets lifted out of poverty. She'll have some good uh, resources for you at that. Sweet. There's going to be a workshop on egalitarian parenting as well. Um, So it's going to be Jody and Michael Chung that are going to lead that. Oh, cool. So that's very much needed. I know that's come up quite a bit. And Mm. we can't cover everyone, but I just wanted to say, too, um, I I am looking forward to Linda Lee Smith Barkman doing something. Mm. Uh, she specifically has, uh, worked in the context of, a, of prison and she's a fuller grad. Nice. Hers is going to be who's talking and who's listening using muted group therapy to enhance interactions between churches and marginalized women. Oh snap. That sounds interesting. 
Okay, I'm going to actually read... I'm going to read her biography because she's just interesting. She holds a PhD in intercultural studies from Fuller Theological Seminary and is is passionate about advocating for women, especially incarcerated women. Linda served 30 years in a California prison as a result of a case involving domestic violence. Hmm. She earned her um, bachelor's in psychology and most of her MA in theology while incarcerated. Hmm. So there, I believe, was a reform in the laws and that's how... She was able to get out. Women were oftentimes held responsible for the things that their husbands did, especially mm. in domestic violence situations. Yeah. So, yikes. Um, there's also going to be things on uh, human trafficking. Uh, I believe some connections between that and porn. Um, so there's a lot of good things. I hope you'll come. It's a much-needed conference these days, and I'd love to meet any of each and every one of you. Yeah. If I'm running around, uh, don't... You know, take it personally, and we will find some time. Well, it'll be easy to find me. I'll just be in a corner by myself, as usual, where I tend to end up. <laughs> so, moving on, we have Holda, our girl Holda, one of the coolest unknown stories in Scripture concerning... Wait, no, we have a discount code. No, that's for <laughs> that's for the end. Oh. That is for the end. So, Allison, lead us into Holda. See, Who... I didn't even really try that time, because I just knew I'd get shot down. Yep. Yep, equal voice means you can't do it till the end. Wayne Grudem is so proud of me right now. Whatever. (laughs) Whatever. All right, so the story of Hulda takes place in 2 Chronicles because everyone... Or is it 2 Kings? Or Mm -hmm. 2 Kings? Ooh. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're the same. They're, you know what? These stories are very similar. Yeah. Um, So we're not going to read them both. It'll take too long. And I think you guys, yeah, would not appreciate that very much. So I'm thinking a Second Chronicles, thirty-four one through twenty-eight. Second Chronicles thirty-four one through twenty-eight. Yeah. Okay. And I will be reading from the CEB. Okay. Yes. And I think Nick and I will just kind of um, discuss back and forth a little bit. Yeah. We'll start off. Um, we're actually going to read through the whole chapter, um, just because I couldn't really decide to take out any of it. So. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he ruled for 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's eyes and walked in the ways of his ancestor David, not deviating from it even a bit to the right or left. In the eighth year of his rule, while he was just a boy, he began to seek the God of his ancestor David. And in the twentieth, or no, sorry, the twelfth year, he, he began purifying Judah and Jerusalem of the shrines, the sacred poles, idols, and images. Under his supervision, the altars for the uh, balls were torn down and the incense altars that were above them were smashed. He broke up the sacred poles, idols, and images, grinding them to dust and scattering them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. That's kind of awesome. And by the way, um, this god uh, takes human sacrifice. Yep. Uh, this is not... <laughs> This is not a nice god. No, this is not the god. Specifically child sacrifice. This is not a god you want worshipping. You want to be worshipping. Well, unless you think it's real, in which case you probably should worship it, because holy snickerdoodle, that's terrifying. Yeah, there's been sites with tons of bones found and... Wonderful stuff. So he burned the bones of the priest on their altars, purifying Judah and Jerusalem. In the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simon, all the way up to Naphtali, he removed their temples tore down the altars and sacred poles, ground the idols to dust, and smashed all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then Josiah returned to Jerusalem. Well, like, my work is done. All right, moving on. Yikes. Yeah, so already um, 
quite an introduction to this king. And you can see that this idolatry is highly entrenched. Mm -hmm. um, and just maybe this will help just a little bit. Um, and if you want to do some further reading, um, check out John Walton's Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament. Okay. Uh, in the ancient world, especially in the Near East, you have you do not have this idea that one god, usually, that one god should be uh, worshipped at the expense of other gods. You don't have, you might have one god that's more prominent in the city and has more honor, but mm. it's not like this one god tells you you can't worship all the other gods. Yeah. And even it was regular practice, if you were going to go invade a, another nation, you sacrifice um, and try to make nice with the gods in your new country. You know, just so they don't, they, you have a good victory. So just getting into that world, it's not like the Near Eastern context was super, um, mm, their gods weren't jealous in that way. I mean, they had yeah. their petty rivalries and they were very much like humans squabbling back and forth, but it wasn't anything like um, this idea that you can't worship other gods. Also, think about this too. Uh, you have a, a, you might have the state god that maybe the higher-ups took care of um, and fed because, you know, gods really like being pampered and taken care of. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the, you know, the people, that the common people would have all these other little de deities, these ancestral deities they would worship. Unknown gods, even. Yeah, that were a lot more personal and actually cared if they worshipped them. So, I mean, the, the god on high, you know, wasn't thought to care about if you worship him or not, because who are you? You're nobody. Yeah. Get out of my way. Maybe maybe for special festivals. But <laughs> Yahweh did care. Um, Yahweh um, maybe was like a ancestral god in that he was personal, mm -hmm. more involved in their everyday lives, but he was also, you know, the big god. And more than that, the god. I would like to read maybe just a part of John Walton's book just to, I guess, give a sense of what's, what's here. Was, the Israelites were being commanded not to construe Yahweh as operating within a community of gods. There is not thought to be a pantheon or consort. He does not function as the head of a pantheon with a divine assembly. In short, he alone exercises divine authority. Basically, the message is Yahweh's power is absolute. And that's it goes further than just saying that these gods don't exist. So you don't see a, a huge case in the Old Testament trying to argue over, well, does you know, this god actually exist in time and space? Instead, the insistence is other gods are not are are powerless. Um, it kind of takes away who they are, what they do. Um, they have no status that's worthy of worship. And so the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Yahweh, cares very much about our hearts and what we decide to value above him. Yeah. Hence, uh, we have the king that's going, unlike the, his, the people before him, uh, he's going through and cleaning house. Mm-hmm. So this is a statement, um, this is very unusual in the the Near East uh, to do, and this is a very, this would be considered a very radical move. All right, so let's read on. So I just wanted to give that little picture. In the 18th year of his rule, after he had purified the land and the temple, Josiah sent, uh, I'm going to slaughter these names, Azalia's son, Shotfan, uh, Maseah, the mayor of the city, and Joaz's son, Joah, the secretary to repair the Lord his God's temple. When they came to the high priest Hilkah, they delivered the money that had been collected in God's temple by the Levitical gatekeepers from Manasseh. 
Ephraim, and the rest of Israel, as well as from Judah, Benjamin, and the residents of Jerusalem. They handed it over to the supervisors in charge of the Lord's temple, who in turn paid it to those working on repairing the temple. So basically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's, he's pumping money into restoring the temple. Yeah, he's making God's house a house again. Yeah, so we're getting a very big picture that this person is extremely zealous uh, for Yahweh. Uh, and this is going to come in, this is going to be extreme, this is going to be very key later. Um, and also notice how much he's actually putting in to trying to restore. And it's not just about restoring a single temple, it's about restoring all of um, the people that are under his care as well and restoring their worship to the one true God. So while they were bringing out the, I'm going to verse 14, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the Lord's temple, Hilkiah, the priest found the instruction scroll that the Lord had been given, had given through Moses. Hilkiah told the secretary, uh, Shaphan, I have found the instruction scroll in the Lord's temple. Wow. So that was just laying around. Yeah. (laughs) So this is the law. This Mm -hmm. is the Torah. Yep. So, it would appear that I guess finding uh, they, it was ac- it's almost like it's accidentally found, yep, just lying around somewhere. And this is in the temple, like this is the Lord's house that's in shambles, and the high mm-hmm. priest doesn't even know much about it. Which means they didn't have the Torah before then, or at least they weren't following it. Yeah, they were not following it. That's for sure. Yep. Um, it's like, why are you even a high priest then, and why? It, it just it asks so many questions. Then Hilkiah turned the scroll over to Shaphan, who brought it to the king with this report. Your servants are doing everything you've asked them to do. Good. They have released the money that was found in the Lord's temple and have handed it over to the supervisors and the workers. Then the secretary, Shaphan, told the king, the priest Hilkiah has given me a scroll. And he read it out loud before the king. As soon as the king heard what the instruction scroll said, he ripped his clothes. The king ordered Hilkiah... Shaphan's son, uh, uh, ha, I can't say it, uh, hi, Kim, Micah's son, Adon, and Secretary Shaphan, and the royal officer, Isaiah's as follows. Go and ask the Lord on my behalf and on behalf of those who still remain in Israel and Judah, and Judah concerning the contents of the scroll that has been found. The Lord must be furious with us because our ancestors failed to obey the Lord's word and do everything written in the scroll. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine, yeah. So, I mean, this is, he's hes definitely trying to do what's right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. What I like is go and ask the Lord on my behalf. And so we'll yeah. see exactly what happens in the very next verse for you to read what this actually means. So just yeah. think about this. Go and ask the Lord on my behalf. Have that kind of lingering in your mind while Allison reads. Yeah. This, this is really important. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> Hilkiah, that's the high priest. And the royal officials went to the prophetess Hulda. Oh. Okay, so the king wants to inquire the Lord. So the high priest and all the royal officials go to... Who is it Jeremiah? No. No. Not unless Jeremiah got a name change. Is it Zephaniah? No. No. They're active at this time. Quite active. And we'll go through some rationalizations later. But... So they go to Hulda. She seems apparently the obvious choice. She was married to Shalom, uh, Tokhath's son, and Hashra's grandson, who was in charge of the wardrobe. So her husband had a good job. Mm-hmm. He was keeper of the wardrobe, yep. king's clothes. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. When they spoke to her, she replied, 
This is what the Lord Israel's God says. Tell this to the man who sent you to me. This is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on this place and its citizens. All the curses written in the scroll that have that they have read to Judah's king. Uh-oh. My anger burns against this place, never to be quenched, because they've deserted me and have burned incense to other gods, angering me by everything they have done. But also say this to the king of Judah, who sent you to question the Lord. This is what the Lord, Israel's God, says about the message you have heard. Because your heart was broken and you submitted before the Lord when you when you heard what he said against this place and its citizens, and because you ripped your clothes and cried before me, I have listened to you, declares the Lord. I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will go to your grave in peace. You won't experience the disaster I'm about to bring on this place and its citizens. When they reported Holda's, oh wait, and then they reported uh, Holda's words to the king. And then the king sent a message and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and all that sort of stuff. So this is not a private affair, we might say. Yeah, and I mean, maybe we should briefly tell them the outcome. Yeah, I'll read it quickly. So yeah. in verse 30, uh, Then the king went up to the Lord's temple, together with all the people of Judah and all the citizens of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, and all the people, young and old alike. Literally everyone is going. Then the king read out loud all the words of the covenant scroll that had been found in the Lord's temple, the the scroll that Holda read from. The king stood in his place and made a covenant with the Lord that he would follow the Lord by keeping his commandments, his instructions, and his regulations with all his heart and all his being in order to fulfill the words of the covenant that were written in this scroll. Then he made everyone found in Jerusalem and Benjamin join in a similar promise. The citizens of Jerusalem lived according to the covenant made with God, the God of their ancestors. Josiah got rid of all the detestable idols from all the regions that belonged to the Israelites, and he made everyone who lived in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as Josiah lived, they didn't turn away from following the Lord God of their ancestors. And as they say in my church, the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Amen. Um, so that's a, that's a huge outcome, obviously. There's a lot to say here. Um, one of which also I, I would like to add with idolatry specifically and the worship of these other gods. I know there's sometimes people will say, like, all religions are kind of the same. They all try to help you become better people. Yeah, that actually isn't the case. Um, maybe some systems uh, try to attempt to do that. But this Near Eastern world and these deities that they're worshiping are not trying to make them... They, It's not like they have a system of ethics the way in the same way we do. Um, it's not like the gods are trying to change their hearts to be... Um, more loving people. Um, this is more th that a god embodies like the sun or luck or, you know, some action that's key to their survival. And so it's a lot more kind of a, I, in my opinion, a I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back kind of relationship here. All right. So basically what we have is um, coming from a prophetic word, um, which is functioning as the the word of the lord from a woman mm -hmm. we have one of the biggest revivals that happens in israel's history yep of course uh god seems to be communicating very clearly that he's going to bring destruction on everyone because of what happened so this is not necessarily a a nice um comforting word per se um, and we'll get to some of that later, um, some of the rationalizations. Uh, I mean, think about this. This guy has just um, purged, the, tried to purge the land of the idols. 
he's pumping all his money and his, like all this money, I should say all this money and all this effort into restoring the temple. And the word of God is basically that he's still going to bring destruction. And, you know, anger burns and it'll never be quenched and all this sort of stuff because they deserted me and have burned incense, blah, 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 angering me, anger, anger, anger. But what's interesting is verse 26 kind of spins it a bit. But say also this to the king of Judah who sent you to question the Lord, uh, Hmm. which I like that phrase, to question the Lord. Who are you to question me? It's like, well, apparently King Josiah is who questions you. I would say it's more of an inquiry. Yeah. This is what the Lord Israel's God says about the message you've just heard. What's interesting here is the Lord speaks and tells him, you know, because you ripped your clothes and cried out, I've listened to you and I will gather you and do all these things. So because of, we might say, just basic repentance, uh, the te- the Israel is spared by literally the king just repenting or rather the king obeying and responding positively and living out what Holda told him. And so what we have here is, uh, the king responds, uh, the king uh, sends this to Holda, and Holda gives him the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, and then he, it's not, but that's not enough, and that's something I think that gets missed, that's not enough, everyone else had to uh, participate in this, and for the rest of the time that Josiah was alive, everyone did participate in it, so Holda's word was not just the word to the king, it was the word to the entire nation, including priests and high priests and people of the law and everyone. So Holda's word was literally God's universal word, prophetic word, over even the priests and the king. And so, and you don't see him going, oh my gosh, I need to get a second opinion. Find me Jeremiah and make sure that this woman said something good, you know? Instead, you get the opposite. Uh, He sent a message, he gathered all the elders, and he did all this stuff in response. And he didn't seem to have basically any problem with Holda telling him what the the Lord was going to do. She does not mince words either. No, she does not. Tell this to the man who sent you to me. Yeah. So she's, she's, she's got some fire to her. I kind of like her. I love that it it says the man and then later switches to the, tell the king. Yep. It starts, it starts off with, tell that man. Yeah. Tell this mortal, this fleshy thing that's come to talk to me. You know, but at the end it's like, but you know, but now you are a king. You've, done this and that you've rightly represented god to us and you've done good things by destroying the idols and grinding them to dust and throwing them out and stuff like that and so this is one of those great instances where a prophet or in this case a prophetess is given god's word and this word has an immediate and powerful impact upon not only the king but the entire nation so without her word you don't have, we might say, great revival. And so as long as Josiah lived, they didn't turn away from following the Lord God of their ancestors. And I would add just this caveat, because of what Holda told him. I'm trying to think, you would think that this is kind of a straightforward passage. And of course, you know, I mean, we, why have a whole discussion on gender here, right? Yeah, why? I mean, what's so challenging about this? She appeals to the authoritative word of God many times. Mm-hmm. So, And they all acted out her word or God's word through her. Yeah. For heaven's sakes, like, it's not just that, like, several men have to go and inquire, not just, I mean, just to understand the law, you know, it, it just, it makes, it just baffles me. It, they're not just any men either. This is the highest ranking men yep. that are going the priest himself. The spiritual heads, we might say. <laughs> yes, actually. So, I don't know. Here's an interesting fun fact, too. Um, I got this from... I was looking at some of the Jewish uh, sites just to see kind of what they were 
uh, referencing in Torah.org and Jewish Encyclopedia. But uh, there's the Gate of Holda in the Second Temple, and it's actually built 70 years later. Some of our Jewish commenters actually say that Holda used to teach um, in between the temple's two gates, like to the two southern gates. Oh, okay. And so this is kind of a, to them, they assumed kind of more of a, a public, well, not quite, uh, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, that's one of the busiest spots, so I don't know. It's one of the more visible spots, too, because everyone's going through it. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting, and we can't know for sure if this gate of Hulda is named after the prophetess Hulda, but I think it seems fairly likely. That's more or less what we've got in terms of the passage. Uh, I would say just very clearly you have a woman who's interpreting the law, the Torah, and she's also delivering God's response that they've sinned and judgment is coming. She's doing so very... um, She's not mincing her words one bit. It's, I mean, it's hard to kind of get anywhere to try to, like, undermine that, but people do. And so let's go ahead and get to the objections, which are a lot more interesting. They're almost more interesting than the passage. Uh, In, oh gosh, in... Interesting being bad in this case. Yeah, interesting being bad (laughs) in this case. So, uh, Wayne Grudem and John Piper did this 50 Crucial Questions... I think I think did. it's in their RBMW book. I'm yeah. getting off the CBMW website. Question 27 is well, we'll we'll just talk about it. Quote: How do you explain God's apparent endorsement of women in the Old Testament who had prophetic or leadership roles? This is their response, and we'll just go through it. First, we need to keep in mind that God has no antipathy towards revealing His will to women. I'm nice to see you think women are the same as men in that regard. Nor does He pronounce them unreliable messengers. Good to know. The differentiation of roles for men and women in ministry is rooted not in women's incompetence to receive or transmit truth, but... They like us receiving and transmitting, apparently. Yeah. But in the primary responsibility of men in God's order to lead and teach. I love how that's just so obvious in these texts. Yes. And And I love this. The instances of women who prophesied and led do not call this order into question. Rather, there are pointers in each case that the women followed their unusual paths in a way that endorsed and honored the usual leadership of men or indicated their failures to lead. It's like, ah, there's the caveat, that hermeneutical bungee jumping. Good for you guys. So much exegesis. Jeremiah was not a failure. Yeah, Barak was not a failure. He's a great man of faith. So anyway, here we go. For example, Miriam, the prophetess, focused her ministry as far as we can tell on the women of Israel in Exodus 15.20. My first response is, is that all, is that all the text indicates? Actually, yeah, it's interesting you should say that. So this is actually coming from the Jewish Midrash. Um, so the, the idea that Jeremiah, maybe Jeremiah prophesied in the streets, Zephaniah in the synagogues, and Hulda in school for women in Jerusalem. Yeah, so that's kind of how they decided to figure it out because, I mean, oh, already it's kind of an odd little setup there, right? Yeah. Like, wh- what about these other ones? But only so far as it pertained to Jewish women, mothers, and daughters. So already it's a little out of place. Um, I don't know. I'll let you read on and then I'll tell you if there's another... There's another thing that the Jewish commentators say to explain that. But. All right. And so here we go. Uh, the, the text they actually cite, Exodus 15.20, says, 
and this is the ESV. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with after her with tambourines and dancing. It's like, yeah, that text just screams that's all she did is her ministry to women. Like this. But what does it say? Let's go to Deborah. Yeah. Or so, sorry, Hulda. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm just going through what they said because it's this is probably the best we'll get. Ugh. Deborah, a prophetess, judge and mother in Israel, along with Jael was a living indictment of the weakness of Barak and other men in Israel who should have been more courageous leaders. Literally, the text does not say that. Yep. So you guys are just making stuff up. So they're taking their interpretation and using it as evidence, biblical evidence. That's very weird. It's not a, it's not a reading of scripture that goes to the text and goes, what What does this tell me versus what does how does this fit into my own subculture? Yeah. And so here we go. And they add this caveat too. The period of the judges is an especially precarious foundation for building a visions of God's ideal for leadership. In those days, God was not averse to bring about states of affairs that did not conform to his revealed will in order to achieve some wise purpose. And my first thought is, Come again for big fudge? Like, the period of the judges is an especially precarious foundation for building a vision of God's ideal for leadership. Deborah is not talked about as being a bad leader. Deborah is actually a very good leader. So, yes, we should look to Deborah. Basic hermeneutics says we should look to Deborah as a good leader. Because the text says she's a good leader. Hulda evidently exercised a prophetic gift, not in a public preaching ministry. I love the fact that they retroject public preaching ministry. But but by means of private consultation. It's like... No, this is not private. Literally everything that happened was universal in all of Israel. And it's interesting because the Jewish commentators seem to, I don't know, kind of assume in in my mind, and maybe, maybe they have a little bit more of a different distinction. I'd have to look into it. But they seem to assume kind of that she was out there, like, maybe a bit more public. Yeah. But at the same time, they kind of limit it to women. But then the question is, well, why does the king choose her? Yep. Especially when there's other men that are known prophets. And there's there's some interesting takes on that. Let me go ahead and find a couple of them for you. Oh, here's, here's a speculation that maybe Jeremiah was on a trip. But the thing is, the trip he would have been on was a city that's nearby. It would be, I think it's called Anna or something like that and that's not that far away um the other thing was well they're men and the king wanted some womanly sweetness and women are by nature more nurturing and kind and compassionate so since god's gonna have a bad message for us let's have a woman say it so it sounds really nice yeah because my anger burns against this place never to be quenched sounds better when coming from a woman yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound very comforting. Um, I mean, yeah, there's God's um, thing at the end that he says, oh, and by the way, you know, your life's legacy that you're, you know, trying to accomplish here. Yeah, you know, don't worry. You won't have to see the end. You won't have to see be there for the destruction. Yeah. And I love that they go the whole like, well, they weren't priests, so therefore this. I'm like, no, but a priest went to her and listened to her and everything like here. So apparently she knew something the priest didn't. And all this sort of so it's it's just it's just a really dumb distinction that doesn't arise out of a basic reading of the text. We must also keep in mind that God's granting power or revelation to a person is no sure sign that this person is an ideal model for us to follow in every respect. It's like no one is actually saying that. <laughs> this is evident, for example, by the fact that some of those God blessed in the Old Testament were polygamists. It's like men and they cite men, which I think is very funny. Like I don't know if you guys realize, but nice face plant there. Not even the gift of prophecy is proof of a person's obedience and endorsement by God. Holda was not sinning by being a woman. And so, in, in, in the, the final sentence, which I think is just wonderful, 
Moreover, in the case of each woman referred to above, we have an instance of a charismatic emergence on the scene, not an installation to the ordinary Old Testament office of priest, which was the responsibility of men. Oh, the assumptions. Oh, the exegesis. So good. I love this. We have an instance of a charismatic emergence. No, she was already a prophet. That's an established role. She's an, that's an established, you know, ministry thing. And so, yeah, you can see if you're actually just reading the text and you're not going, well, Mo 1 Timothy 2.12 says this, therefore we can't have this. You just, you don't come to these conclusions and it's just basic exegetical things. And they all know this. Narratives are designed to communicate something. Are we saying narratives are less truthful than favorite propositions in Paul, or at least they're misreading of Paul? No. So all this to say. It just seems to like there's a lot of absence of evidence is considered evidence of absence. So it's just, I mean, and they don't do this with the other things. So, I mean, so because it doesn't say specifically that Holda always spoke in front of large crowds, Therefore, she didn't. Well, there it's, it's kind of like saying, yeah. just because, it's like saying, Holda doesn't use my ecclesiologically motivated modernistic reading of sacred scripture filtered through 2,000 years of church history that is divorced from Second Temple Judaism and Old Testament and ancient Near East stuff. Therefore, this text cannot be used against my position. Well, let, let's, let's do this. Maybe um, Al Mohler realizes that he has cr- done a grave sin and he has broken God's law. So he sends Wayne Grudem. John Piper, and eh, Mark Driscoll, because why not? He sends them all out to the house of this woman named... Beth to Moore. In, to interpret, oh. uh, to hear interpretation and a delivering of the will of the Lord. I, yeah, I, I just, yeah, I, I, I'm just, I'm picturing that, and I'm wondering if they would feel a little uncomfortable with a, a woman instructing them on the ways of the Lord, um, specifically with you know, interpreting and, you know, delivering the law or a, a, a book of the Bible or it just kind of, I'm just, I'm just looking at this and wondering what if we did the reverse and we started absolutizing everything that's actually in this passage and applying it to, I don't know, only women or something like something fun like that. So, I mean, let's see. So only women can really deliver the authoritative word of God. Only women can understand the Torah. I mean, after all, there were several men around, the king, the the high priest, and none of them were really equipped. So, you know, when when there was a woman that was finally capable, you know, God just said, you know what, you know, these men, I've had enough with them. Women are just, I don't know, maybe just more equipped. Handle it. Or maybe because sin came through Adam in Romans 5, Women don't have sinful stuff problem. Yeah. The fact that you have, and it's one of those things, I refuse to believe that anyone comes to the text uh, as a tabula rasa, as a blank slate. You come to the text with your subculture screaming in the back of your head. Happened to me, happens to you. That's not the problem. The problem is when you absolutize your subcultural reading that's denominationally motivated. I'm looking at certain Southern Baptist friends of mine. I love you, but good Lord, y'all. And you basically absolutize the text for your own specific context without reading it in its own context according to what it demands and how it demands that you should read it. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where as someone who's a screenwriter, who's done a lot of work in narrative, who's gotten paid as a screenwriter, that, that's storytelling yeah. for movies, narrative accounts contain lots of truth too. And it's this thing where we want propositions, we want syllogisms, we want this. And it's like, nope, sometimes God talks to you in parables. doesn't mean parables don't have truth to communicate. It just means God's trying to speak to you in a way that you can understand. 
It's just interesting too to hear like just some perspect some other perspectives that are also reading into the text. Um, and I mean, it's not quite as maybe simple because they're they also have a very time honored oral tradition granted. that itself is kind of its own authoritative um, body of writings. Absolutely, granted. Um, so I, I will say that, but it's kind of this. Uh, it, it's interesting because it's almost like competing where. Um, yeah, she's she's a school teacher. You know, we know there's that second that's the gate of Hulda, you know, the second temple, you know, she maybe even taught between the gates, but it was only to, to women, perhaps, you know, so it's just kind of interesting, like they, they see something maybe a little more active, where did we really do we really get a sense in a lot of these biblical texts that pro- a prophetic role was tucked away somewhere in a only in a house, like in private, or, like, or even worse, that uh, you get this sense of, I have a box. I need to be able to fit her within my box versus where does she put herself in God's story and how do I construct my box around that? And it's one of yeah. those things too, Just and this I think just basically turns this episode into a case study in hermeneutics, yeah. or as Jamin Hubner said, sex is hermeneutics. And just the, re- the, the, the mindset of when you construct an ideology or a theology or however you do that, and you don't let scripture be the first mouth to speak, you basically run the risk of ending up going, well, she can't fit in my system because my system is my system. Let's just say, let's just say for the sake of argument that because it doesn't say that Holda is speaking to a large crowd of people that yeah. in, you know, in, in the town square or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Behind um, a pulpit, behind a microphone. You know, it's just, you still have Deborah, you know, that's portrayed in a very public capacity. Yep. Um, you have her being the one who summons. You have people going to her for judgment at a very public place that's reminiscent of another uh, key judge and prophet. I mean, for heaven's sake, she went to war. Like, I don't know. Um, so let me let me go ahead and read something that Thomas Schreiner uh, wrote uh, in Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood um, under the chapter 11, The Valuable Ministries of Women in the Context of Male Leadership. Well, that's not a loaded title. A survey of Old and New Testament examples and teaching. Uh, He's going to address, Those who see no restrictions on women in ministry argue that the prophets of both the Old Testament and the New Testament were authoritative messengers of God. Women clearly functioned as prophetesses in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Miriam is explicitly called a prophetess in Exodus 15.20. That text I read earlier. Yep. And she led the women in singing for Yahweh's triumph over Egypt, Exodus 15.21. The prophetess Hulda was consulted by the messengers of Josiah in 2 Kings 22:14-20 and our text as well. Yeah. The messengers, uh, you know, already a little like already pre- already prejudiced reading. Um yeah, it's like um how would it read for his argument? Um the king sent the high priest and all and the royal, all the officials, royal yeah. officials, yep. <laughs> um other women so he goes on, you know, name some others. Um See, the problem here was not that these women prophesied, but they did not prophesy according to the word of the Lord. Oh my. So already, you know, thus saith the Lord um, from Polda, you know, read uh, the second Kings 22, eight through 20 and, you know, our passage, you know, and you're going to hear something a little different. Like, actually, it's funny. I had a, a long discussion with this guy way back when he wanted to bring back slavery and had some other bizarre views. But anyway, he he told me, name one woman who has said, thus saith the Lord. And I said, Hilda, here you go. Yep. And he had said he would, like, reverse all of his 
um, patriarchal ways and views, but he didn't. I was of course he doesn't, because he's a coward. Shocked. But, um... I love this. Verse 24, verse 23 from Huldah. She replied, this is what the Lord Israel's God says. Yep. Shriner. He goes through, you know, just some of what the women did. And we talked a lot about this last time. So. Um, so, and then he goes on and says, they argue thus that if women can prophesy, they can perform any ministry. They argue that prophecy is just as important and as authoritative as teaching. By the way, I mean, the Bible doesn't separate these two so strictly. It's these guys. Anyway, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, the gift of prophecy is ranked above teaching. Now, nearly everyone agrees that women can function as prophets, for the evidence here is clear. But if women can function as prophets, it would seem that they can also function as teachers today, because prophecy is just as authoritative as teaching. So, okay, so how are you going to respond? And so, you know, he goes on, okay, you know, they also argue for spiritual gifts, so he goes on to say both Deborah and Huldah, 2 Kings 22, 14 through 20, exercise their gifts of prophecy differently from the men who possess the gift. So we've kind of already discussed this a bit. So he goes on and on and on. What it comes down to is why is the distinction, why he makes a distinction between teaching and prophesying. He says it, there's basically that the, in the New Testament prophecy, the gift of prophecy is not as authoritative as the gift of teaching. Teaching involves a sustained and orderly exposition of divine revelation already given, while prophecy in the New Testament occurs when someone has a spontaneous revelation or impression, whole or parts, which may or may not be from the Lord. The church does not accept such revelations uncritically, but weighs them carefully. Thus, the fact that, oh, that women utter prophecies in church does not logically imply that they can exercise a teaching gift over men, for the two gifts are quite different. To sum up, those women who had the authoritative gift of prophecy in the Old Testament did not exercise it in a public forum as a male Old Testament prophet did. So basically these distinctions and that latter um, interpret, uh, interpretation is also coming from how they understand 1 Corinthians 14 as well. Yep. But so what it comes down to is they're just reading back uh, these very, I think, artificial distinctions that they've interpreted um, from the text, from the absence, in, you know, of anything mentioned in the text on these female prophets. And even when they're actually appearing to, you know, perform more public roles, it's still considered private and hush-hush. Yep. I mean, even thinking like five men, is that really just a very small private matter anymore? Especially when it impacts literally, literally the entire nation. Yeah, it just kind of... It's just a very bizarre reading. Uh, <laughs> well, it doesn't arise out of a natural reading of the text. And that's where I keep coming back to. This is what made me an egalitarian. I just read scripture, tried to put all that stuff aside, and just went, do I have to adopt this hermeneutical lens? And the basic reason was no. I, I don't see the reason why I should assume that Deborah or Hulda or any other women prophesied in private. I don't know what that means. Yeah, it's uh, just it, kind of... And it also assumes that... You don't learn, say that. Well, yeah. the whole idea of teaching, too, right? Teaching implies someone who's learning or receiving something. Prophecy is designed to tell you something. And in this case, the king thought he was going to die and all this sort of stuff. He thought, like, God's going to destroy us. And she basically tells him, and he learns through what she says, that no, this is not going to happen because you've been faithful. 
So I think the king learned something. And to make these sort of artificial distinctions, like you yeah. said, it's just unnecessary. It's just, it's really unnecessary unless... And their interpretation yeah. of First Corinthians 14 is very bizarre. And I mean, it's a standard complementarian interpretation to make that distinction. Yep. Um, I had someone ask me about that uh, that passage in particular, First uh, Corinthians 14. And I just said, well, where in the Bible does it actually say that? So y- y- that's what you're saying the passage means, but what indicators do you see in the text of that? And yeah. it just seems like so much of this is just read into the text. And then it, it's kind of like they, it needs to fit a certain paradigm. So they make a certain interpretation that fits that paradigm. And then they assume that interpretation is actually what the text is indicating it, 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 or, or saying. And so then they say, well, this passage says that. And it's just a lot more of a extrapolation. I would say even more of an extrapolation because it's one thing to say this line right here, the safe the Lord means God is speaking. You know, it, that's a little bit more direct. It's a little bit more of a strange construction um, on what, you know, we're going to read into it that God, let's see, when God speaks, he means that he is, he has a mouth or I don't know, it's just something very strange. Um, and then saying that's what the text is actually saying directly yeah and and it's one of those things too you just kind of look at this and you read it and you just go what what in the text drives this conclusion what what in the text if you think of the text as a a boat and as and your interpretation as the motor right it's kind of guiding it's like what is powering the motor what's what's doing this and for here it's like one i don't think holda solves the debate on women in ministry no but i don't think any text does that no but Reading this, I'm just like, this is really cool. This is a great indicator that women have prophetic gifts, that women can teach men in high places what the word of the Lord is. And Israel was not as sexist as a lot of people like to say it was. They didn't have any problem with her doing what she was doing. So in my mind, okay, sure, women can do lots more than just simply have a spontaneous gift, which I, I still don't know what that means in Shriner's language. Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, it's just like, all right, you say women cannot teach nor, you know, exercise authority. What about all those instances where they seem to be doing just that? Well, it wasn't in public or they're doing it for the women. Well, and or... then and then and then you've got all these little like, well, you know, maybe it doesn't seem like it's quite like that. And it's just after a while, you just kind of say, what of substance is actually here? What is you know, crisp and clear, and you don't have to read all of these things into it. And I think what it comes back down to is uh, they are reading a very particular interpretation from 1 Timothy 2, and I would say they're also um, perhaps lending from 1 Corinthians 14. But I think it really goes back to um, a proposition they perceive in that 1 Timothy 2 wording. Because to them, it's a proposition and it's clear, Everything to else, them. yeah. To everything them. else that appears in a narrative or basically tells you what women are actually doing has to be subsumed under that. Yep, it's one verse guides everything I think about scripture, and that is how cults do exegesis. That's how you arrive at Arianism, guys. So <sighs> yeah. better just not to go with what one verse says. Well, and unfortunately, that's how a lot of us do extra exegesis. And no, it's true. you know, it's not just it's not just them. And I mean, I've we've. Okay, we've heard some very horrendous egalitarian exegetical moves. Oh yes. Um, we have heard. <laughs> well, maybe that'll be another fun. Yeah, we'll do maybe an episode on bad egalitarian arguments. Yeah, or because you know what? I mean, we've heard we've heard some things. Yeah. Um, let's just put it. Let's just leave it at that. 
So we have one question from Twitter. Okay. And that is from a certain uh, Reverend Dr. Michael F. Bird, our favorite coffee drinker okay. down in Australia. He asks a more sim- a similar question that he asked last time, but this question I think is uh, a little more broad. Quote, how do you solve America's mega pastor Me Too problem? What? My answer is very simple. Don't have a mega pastor. <laughs> Serious. Don't have a mega pastor. I, well, okay, so I, I would say this, that um, the contexts that seem to have trouble with abuse... Um, <coughs> Driscoll, <coughs> excuse me. ...tend to be churches where you have a consolidation of power, um, or you have, um, I guess you could say, it doesn't have to necessarily always be official, it can be a cult of personality. Mm-hmm. That's how it um, usually is. But it, it's any setup where an individual is given free reign to do whatever they want. Finances, doctrine, business, when they when they're the final say, and that doesn't happen at our church, there's no way that would happen. Yeah. And when they're given that, then it's time to pump the brakes or break, break basically you need to break up the monopoly. Yeah, and the thing is, it's not all um, structures like that will have abuse in them, but it's one of several factors that actually do contribute to enabling it. And mm-hmm. again, our system of government is set up to try to check, you know, put different powers in uh, check and balance. So, In, in theory, yeah. yes. You know, at, well, it's not perfect, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think a lot of us are thankful, perhaps at many points in history, that every single president did not get to do 100% everything they wanted to do. Yep. And so with that... Uh, well, oh. I'd like to add something, too. It's not just about... I think it's wrong to think that it's just about the one guy. Because it, it's really like, do you have a, a scenario? Do you have a... Um, and this could even be a church that has is led by a team of people. Mm-hmm. Um, where are the where's the accountability? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, that's the key point that we're really needing to zero in on. Because you know, again, when you have that unilateral leader or group, that's where the accountability falls away. But on the other end of the spectrum, you can have an organization or church that has a very very um, low, uh, I would say authoritative structure. Um, and if you have such a a scenario where there's no formal leadership perhaps, or no rules that are going to be really enforced, um, that's ripe for an individual coming in and running the show. Yep. So if you have, I would say extremely weak leadership or, uh, over consolidated leadership, I would say, Take care of those two things. Add checks and balances. Add accountability, and you're on your right. You're on the path. Yep. I think it is time for a coupon coupon code. A coupon code. A coupon code. So, um, actually, it's funny. So when I was a kid, I used to call coupons cucumbers because I don't know they sounded similar. No, they don't. <laughs> to me, they did. No, well, no, they don't. To my young mind, they did, and I don't think I really understood that. Um, the difference either. I think I imagined like slices of cucumbers that gave you special Special abilities. gift offers. Okay, sure. Yeah. So the people have waited an hour for this. What do we have for them? Um, all right. So if you go to register um, at Christians for Biblical Equalities Conference, um, you can get um, 23% off um, the regular price by using the code SPLITFRAME. All one word. All one word. And try all caps. And if that doesn't work, then no. It's either all caps or no caps. I never know with certain discount codes. Yeah, you never know. So, so 
that'll bring it down by about a quarter. And yeah. Yeah. And I'll be leading a, a workshop too. You will be? Oh gosh. What is it? Yeah. Um, so actually I'll read to you um, what my workshop uh, description will be, or at least what I'm planning on submitting. We'll see. Things change. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 1 Timothy 2 is often taken for granted as the text that clearly bars women from holding positions of leadership in the church. The debate at large is too frequently reduced to the meaning of terms such as authority and teaching, as well as the grammatical relationship between them. Although these are an important part of the larger discussion, I will propose another angle of approach. Using a theological interpretive approach, I will evidence a, a typological relationship between Eve and Christ and discuss some of the implications for our understanding of human power and identity. Ooh. Yep, so I'd love you to come for you to come, but we have a lot of great speakers, so um, you should definitely come and check out some of them. Nice. And thanks, Mike, for the question. Uh, cheers and coffee to you. Uh, if you guys want, just follow him on Twitter. That's at mbird1212. And tweet He's hilarious. Him, and, well, yeah. And tweet him pictures of coffee because that's his favorite drink of all time, especially the really instant, like, powdery stuff. That's that's kind of his jam. Yeah. And you know what? He really loves whiskey. Whiskey? Yes. Whiskey is his second favorite thing. And I, I don't know if he's a cat or a dog person, but just send him pictures of cats and dogs because that's what he likes. Uh, I'd say cats because we're cat fans. Yeah, that's a good question, Mike. Mike, are you a dog person or a cat person? Inquire, Mike.